Welcome to the Two and Under podcast, the Southern Hemisphere's original and best dedicated Newcastle United podcast. We're here today for a very special episode because it's almost almost a year now since the takeover happened. Um, so we're going to talk about the whirlwind twelve months that has been. What of the what have the new owners said? What have they done? Um, both sort of on and off the pitch. And probably just as importantly, how how has it made us as a fan base? How has it made us as individuals feel in that time? Um, it's been a it's been a crazy crazy twelve months, even in the even by the standards of Newcastle United. Um, so we'll get into all of that stuff. It's one we've been looking forward to doing for a while. I'm Jack in Brisbane. I've just about recovered from the weekend in Sydney. That we just had uh, for the Aussie Mags meetup. I've also got Bobby with me. He was with me in Sydney. How are you doing, Bobby? Good, Jack. I haven't recovered. I'm too old for this shit. But um, it was a great weekend. Obviously, meeting you know the two and under pod lads was was fantastic. And the Aussie Mags, uh, there was a lot of them. So um, we painted Sydney black and white with the help of Collingwood. To be honest. Um, <laughs> that was a great week. Great weekend and uh, too much alcohol consumed. You're a bit older than me, Bobby, so you take a bit longer to recover. So that's all good. Absolutely. And we've got Craig as well. Craig, who is in Cairns at the moment, but will soon be in Mackay, which is a little bit further down Queensland if you look at a map, but it's still about an eight-hour drive away. How are you, Craig? I'm good, mate. Uh, bit knackered, been a long day, but I'm good. Looking forward to this podcast. And you did the watch along as well with Mark uh, when we were all in Sydney, didn't you? I did, yeah. We done the watch along. We went across the Alive a few times, uh, which was eventful. Um, match wasn't great spectacle, but seeing you lads having a, a good time uh, certainly made it that bit more of a better evening, that's for sure. Yeah. I should say as well, we're recording this on the Wednesday night, um, so it dep- I, don't, I don't know when we'll release yet, but yeah, that's why we're talking about events of the weekend that's just gone. But let's talk about the takeover then. So before we actually get into talking about the takeover, I just want to get an idea from you both about how did you feel about Newcastle United in kind of the days, the weeks, the months prior to the takeover happening? Because... For me, it was it was a very despondent time to be a Newcastle United supporter. Uh, I didn't want to watch the games. I basically didn't watch the games live um, or very rarely watched them live. To be honest, I didn't care about the results. It, it got to that point where I was just so apathetic. I just didn't care about what was happening. I was so completely hopeless about the future. We had, obviously, Ashley was there, but we had a manager that, was really difficult to get behind. So when we lost, I would just shrug my shoulders expectantly. And that's a really difficult and dark place to be, I think, as a as a football supporter and not somewhere that, that it's nice to be and where anybody wants to be. We're going to talk about the polar opposite of that feeling soon. But Craig, I'll come to you first on that. How were you feeling just prior to the takeover happening? 
Well, just prior to the takeover happening was the Wolves game in uh, Molyneux, I believe it was, uh, where we went 2 1. We lost the game 2 1. I think Jeff Hendricks scored the last ever goal of the Ashley era. And I think that just kind of sums it up in that game alone. That game was devoid of any passion, any noise from the the crowd itself. It was just one of those games where it just felt like it was the end. Um, not the end because the takeover was coming because none of us had any clue at the time. Uh, but it just felt like the club was on life support and somebody was ready to pull the plug. Mm. Bobby? Yeah, I mean, it's, it was a long time in the Ashley era and it just it got worse and worse. And um, then with Steve Bruce, it, it, it probably was its worst ebb for me and I just felt nonchalant, I suppose. It was a bit like you. Like I, I did watch a lot of the games live. I, I, I miss some. I don't miss any now. But I missed, I missed some. But it, when you're watching it, you just had I, I didn't have the same fire or the same passion that I had that I've got now or had previously supporting Newcastle. It was it was like your soul was ripped out of you, you know, um, watching them and mm. you were just waiting for something. And I mean, just before the takeover, uh, uh, you know, they say the darkest, you know, the dark, it's always darkest before the dawn. And I think that's true with us. Um, yeah, most definitely, because it was, I think I, after that Wolves game, I sort of said to myself, what the hell am I doing? Like, why, why do you bother? <laughs> you know? So yeah, it was, uh, it wasn't great. And, um, and the takeover dragged on for a while as well. I mean, it, it sort of, when it happened, it happened quick, but we had this hope, I think. And I remember I went through about three slabs of brown ale ordered <laughs> fire because I was just waiting to, to have one one of them available when it happened. And I went through three slabs before it even did you did you think that the takeover was up. ever actually so did you think the takeover was ever actually going to happen do you think it would happen because it had been rumbling on for more than sort of this one had been rumbling on for about a year and a bit but there'd been other takeovers mm. before that so there was the there was the there was just other groups that never seemed like to get anywhere really close there was a lot of time wasters and Novo Bellagraph was one of them that Michael Chopper was yeah, involved yeah. with. And then there was Jeez. the, the infamous Henry Maurice, um, who Luke Edwards Luke had Edwards mentioned. Right. But yeah, but it just seemed like things were just I, I, I had kind of lost all hope that it was gonna happen. I just said I don't want to hear anything more about this until the deal is signed, sealed, and delivered. Um, I'm just not interested anymore because I just don't think I've I've had my hopes up too high previously. There was an occasion as well. I think it was just before a game, um, a couple of years before that, where it looked like it was going to happen, and the journalists started reporting it as well. And then that didn't didn't work that time, mm. and everything fell through. So, did you think, Craig, that it was going to happen ever, or did you have that hope, or had you resigned yourself to a life of misery like I had? Well, on the time what you mentioned there, where all the journalists were saying it's pretty much done deal, it's 99% done, all but signed, sealed and delivered. I believe it was at that point when they changed one of the directors at the Premier League, and that's when shit started going sideways, I think. Uh, and that's when I thought, yeah, it's dead. Um, to quote Simon Jordan, it was deader than a dead thing from Deadland. And again, it was just devoid of all hope and just 
consign to another years of Ashley and Bruce and Charnley and championship football. And just, I don't know. And then we had the, the arbitration case. Uh, I think it was the arbitration case. And I think what it was the most watched one in history. There was like 20,000 people watching us. And uh, when I, I, I actually stayed up to watch at, uh, on my laptop in bed, and I think some of the evidence that were given out, I know they had a break when they couldn't do it. You know, there's maybe a slim chance that this could be back on because we were winning that fight hands down. It was a bit one-sided. And then, obviously, the news broke and they say the rest is history. How about you, Bobby? Did you think it was going to happen ever? Did you retain hope? I wanted to retain hope the whole time, so I hung on to it like, you know, as much as I could. <laughs> and I, I always sort of, I think, convinced myself to believe. And I think I, I grew in hope when DeMarco landed. Um, I think when, when when Mike Ashley employed Nick DeMarco and reading up on him and his interactions with the club, I there's something in me said, there is something in this that they're fighting this. Mike Ashley is fighting this. And when you peel the onions, the layers and and go into it, Mike Ashley was never getting the 300 and whatever million from anyone else but the Saudi Saudi people. Mm-hmm. So he wanted it as much as they did. And I thought, okay, it's it's gonna it's gonna happen. But then, you know, as you said, it was a year of yes, no, Amanda Stavely. He's a liar. No, this, that. No, mm-hmm. you know, your emotions are getting pulled everywhere. And it's, you know, what do they say? Don't have hope because it, you know, it pulls you in all sorts of diff- different directions. And that's <laughs> what it did to me. I it was the most roller coaster period of my life following Newcastle. Just, and it was all off the pitch. It wasn't nothing to do with <laughs> on the pitch. It was all off the pitch. But uh, yeah, when Dick, Nick DeMarco landed, I, my hope route, yeah. rose again. That's interesting what you were saying about Ashley as well, um, because he did want this to happen really bad. And I think people were quite sceptical of that at the time as well, but I certainly was sceptical about it because I didn't think he ever wanted anything that wasn't in his own self-interest. But then, like you said, he wasn't getting $300 million from anybody else, so it very much was in his self-interest on this occasion. So that kind of that sets the scene for where we were. And that Wolves game has gone down, you know, it's infamous game because the away end was exceptionally flat that day. I've heard mm-hmm. True Faith and a few other people who were there say that it was a really bad away end. There's just no no hope left for anybody there. Um, little did we know what was going to happen a few days later. And then a few days later, this is what did happen. So this was 5.18pm on Thursday, the 7th of October, 2021, UK time, which makes it 218 AM on Friday, the 8th of October in Australia. This is what happened. Have got what they have wanted for a long, long time, for 18 months of this uh, takeover saga, for 14 years of, of Mike Ashley's stewardship. The Premier League statement, which we've been waiting for all day long, has just landed uh, in my, my inbox in the last minute. I'll read it to you and uh, I'll, I'll read every word of it. It says the Premier League, Newcastle United Football Club and St James's Holdings Limited, of course that's Mike Ashley's company, have today settled the dispute over the takeover of the club by the consortium of PIF, PCP Capital Partners and the uh, Rubin Brothers Sports and Media Company. 
Following the completion of the Premier League's owners and directors test, the club has been sold to the consortium with immediate effect. They say the There's Keith Downey there of Sky Sports parachuting into the affections and the love and the heart of every single Newcastle United fan in the world, I think, at that time, even though those of us who were asleep in Australia. I think it was one of those where we knew that it was going to happen, but it was like getting later and later. And we knew that the next day was a work day. <laughs> so we had to try to get some sleep. Um, so, Bobby, how was, it, how was the next day for you after that? I stayed up. Um, yeah. I couldn't get to sleep and I cancelled a few appointments the next morning because uh, <laughs> I was I was up all night. I did not get a, a week of sleep and I had to get, drop the kids to school, all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, I mean, it was like a dream, to be honest. When that moment happened and just seeing the celebrations and, you know, it, it was pandemonium, but it was still like a dream. It was like, I'm not, this is not real. It's not happened. This doesn't happen to us. And, um, and it wasn't so much that it was the Saudis or, or whoever who bought us. It was just Mike Ashley's gone. I think, you know, any Newcastle fan who's been a fan since his tenure would tell you that we just needed him out of the club. It didn't matter really who bought us. And so I think I celebrated the fact that he was finally gone. And no matter what, whatever was in store, there was a fresh start. So, um, yeah, how good was that? Like that footage still gives me goosebumps. It makes me smile. No matter what. It was amazing. that The Friday, the next day, I remember going... It was one of those where you go to work and you're kind of telling people who really don't care. Mm-hmm. Like, who, who were Australian. They've got, they don't care about football. <laughs> they don't care about... But I was going around <laughs> telling everybody what had happened. Um, and I remember wearing my Newcastle shirt out in public in my suburb where I live for the first, I think for the first time as well. And I was in Coles. And for, for UK people, that's the big supermarket. And people were talking to me about football. And I was, I, I realized how much I'd kind of missed that because um, we hadn't had that because I hadn't been proud to follow Newcastle. And there were, there were questions that were coming up as well. Like there was a lot of flack getting thrown at the club and the supporters because of the Saudi involvement as well. But yeah. Craig, that, that next day for you and that, that, that moment, how was that for you? Can you describe that? It was totally euphoric, to be honest, because I'm like Bobby. I, I stayed up. Uh, well, I went to bed first, couldn't sleep. A million things running through your head as you'd expect, and I'm scrolling through Twitter endlessly, like I think everybody else was, before any drips of information. And I think it was about two o'clock. I just got up, um, found a stream of Sky Sports News on uh, through a VPN on uh, my TV, and again still streaming through. And I think I seen the. The tweet from Murd at first, which just said cans, hashtag cans. And obviously that was a, a worldwide trend way before anything was official. And that alone just brought a smile as wide as the tine on my face. And then when I was listening to Downey just uh, say that stuff there, I was genuinely I was getting emotional to the point where my eyes would wallop with tears and stuff. And I'd never been so happy to be free of that cancerous ownership from the past 14 years. Like Bobby said, it didn't matter who took over the club. We were heading in a different direction. And it was just 
at work, everybody, like I say, they're not interested in um, football or soccer, as they call it over here. Uh, everything's NRL or AFL, and everyone's a, a cowboy supporter up in this end. They're like, oh, what do you mean you, you've got to take on? Well, we're now effectively the richest sporting team in the world. We've got the, the world's richest owners. We could do this, we could do that with the right people. And then you know, you'd find some random person. I remember sitting in the food court at the local shopping centre, and I had my uh, Newcastle shirt on. And this bloke in a PSG comes up to us, taps us on the shoulder, and goes, uh, "So who are you going to buy?" I went, "Well, they're getting them Bappy off you next week." And uh, <laughs> he just started laughing, and it, it was stuff like that. Just, it kind of brought the football world together as well. Um, but I just. I will never forget that morning, that day. Going to work absolutely exhausted. I think I had like three Red Bulls that day. Had the heartbeat of a cheetah at full flight. It was genuinely amazing. I'll never forget it. And it will go down. It's probably the most important day in the club's modern day history, I'd say. Yeah. And those those scenes of jubilation at St. James's Park as well. <laughs> so, like you said, like the, the crowds have been gathering there since... I think it's probably the morning time when it became apparent that it was going to happen. Um, so by by five o'clock, by five eighteen, Sam Fender was on his way, <laughs> yeah. uh, and the the strawberry was probably the busiest it had ever been on a non-match day, uh, and the the world's media had sort of descended on St James's Park, and it was just scenes of it was it was relief. I think like you you've both mentioned the importance and the significance of Mike Ashley getting rid of Mike Ashley here. And I think that's, I think that's true that like a lot of the fans were getting criticized or the fan base as a whole was getting criticized because of the the Saudi involvement and the identity. But like what they didn't really seem to understand was that this was just a release after 14 years of being sort of trekked with contempt and downtrodden and, you know, People will say that we were a Premier League team and what do we have to complain about? But it was the complete um, absence of ambition, the absence of hope that we had. And that was what erupted on that day, on the takeover day, with those scenes of the jubilation and excitement. And I think that's what it was. Go on, Bobby. Yeah. It wasn't until about 11 o'clock that morning when uh, my best mate gave me a call and he's a, a borough fan, I mentioned him before, and he rang me just to, to see how I was and and he mentioned the Saudi ownership and how rich we were. I mm. think it was that stage that, oh, yeah, that's right. We we are loaded as well. It was <laughs> up until then. It was it was just about Ashley out for me anyway. I, I won't speak on behalf of the whole fan base. Yeah. But um, for me, it was just relief. It was joy. It was the 14 years of, you know, no hope. Um, all of a sudden, it was just, you know, euphoric, as Craig said. And um, yeah, it wasn't until 11 o'clock that morning. But I got the call, and then they, someone said, oh, "He said, like you know, you must be happy with being the richest club in the world." I went, "Oh yeah, we are loaded, aren't we?" <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Like the 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 wealth was a kind of this. It's interesting because the wealth was for the people on the outside, the thing that they focused on, and the fans inside the club didn't care about that at that point. Um, mm. We were just happy to be rid of Mike Ashley. Um, and for me, it took, I think it took at least two weeks for it to kind of sink in properly. Um, like, I was I was thinking about it all the time, obviously, because it was such a big seismic event. But it took me, it took me a while in the in the face of a lot of noise from the outside as well, 
to kind of order my thoughts on everything and how I thought about it and how we were going to respond to people when they said, when they talked about Saudis and all that sort of thing. And it took a few weeks for me to kind of order that, get that straight in my head and then to get an idea about what direction they were going to start going in as well. Cause we all, we're going to talk about what they've, what they've said and what they've done, but there was kind of important decisions that they had to make quickly. Um, including what they were going to do with the manager situation, which was the next thing on the agenda after the takeover happened and after the dust had settled a little bit. And of course, there was a match as well in two days, a <laughs> home match as well. So, um, all right. What we'll do is we'll just have a very, very short break and I'm going to, I'm going to um, bring up some of the things that Amanda Staveley had said when she first, uh, the takeover was confirmed. Right, so it's it's interesting with the Newcastle takeover because it's eighty percent PIF Saudi Arabia, which let's you know let's be under no illusions that it is Saudi Arabia, even though the Premier League <laughs> waved it through, uh, saying it was that that had separation confirmed when everyone knows it was about piracy anyway. So absolutely, the the consortium is eighty percent yeah. the public investment fund of Saudi Arabia, and it's ten percent the Rubin brothers. And ten percent, the Amanda Staveley and Murdad Gudusi, her husband. But the interesting thing was that the Staveley and Gudusi were kind of the the public face of the takeover uh, at the beginning, and they were the ones that had pushed. Staveley particularly was the one who had been very tenacious about it. She had been pushing for this for a long time, so she was the she was the person who was coming out and was was doing the media and who was involved with the statement as well. So she said a couple of things on the, on the day of the takeover. I'm going to read this, this quote, which was from the club website. So she said, this is a long-term investment. She said, we intend to create a united philosophy across the club, establish a clear purpose and help provide leadership that will allow Newcastle to go on to big achievements over the long term. Our ambition is aligned with the fans to create a consistently successful team that's regularly competing for major trophies and generates pride across the globe. Craig, how does it feel for, for you to hear the owner, part owner of Newcastle United, talking about purpose, about ambition, about being successful team and competing for major trophies. How does it feel for you to hear that after 14 years of Mike Ashley? Well, uh, beats Yaron. We've just got to tick along, haven't we? Every after every single game, uh, it, it's absolute breath of fresh air. I love the fact that in maybe in that interview, another one she mentioned about we are not owners, we are custodians of the club, and I thought that's a fantastic uh, statement as well. But yeah, uh, the fact that we knew they had intent. And Saudis, though, they don't want to play second to anybody. Uh, they, they, they come to win. Uh, they come to take part and take over effectively. And I think that is their long-term gain. And it, it's so exciting to hear those words. Uh, we, we're so used to saying, oh, yeah, we just couldn't get it over the line. We couldn't scrape a million pound together for a loan fee um, to get that Leicester player on was a deadline day. I think it was uh, that same season as well. Uh, we, but we did get 25 million for Joe Willock, which is a bit strange. Um, but yeah, it was just 
again, it, it was all part of the parcel of what that takeover was. It was played out in the media probably too much uh, for everybody else, but for us, we couldn't get enough of it. I was soaking every bit of news and information that was coming through, and it was all absolutely positive in my eyes, but I'm obviously going to be biased in that opinion um, because it's a benefit of our football club. But I can't fault uh, Mandy, Amanda, whatever you want to call her, in those first few days because she was open, she was honest, but it all sounded genuine, and that's the key word there, genuine. It could have easily have just been uh, false promises, uh, false dawns, whatever you want to call it, but it all sounded real. And so far, she's lived up that promise. I'm going to come to you in a minute, Bobby, but you've mentioned that quote about the custodian. So this is what she said. She was asked directly about um, her plans for Newcastle over the next five to ten years. And this was with a sit-down with the media at Jasmine Dean House on the takeover day. She said, Newcastle deserves to be top of the Premier League. She said, it will take time, but we will get there. We want to be great custodians of this club, which is what you just mentioned, Craig. She said, we don't want to be in danger of over-promising. Newcastle is the best team in the world and we want to see it get those trophies. Top of the Premier League in Europe. And she said to get trophies means investment, patience, time. So in the one breath, she's saying we don't want to overpromise. And then the media, the media made this out to, that it was her saying we're going to win the Premier League in five years, which isn't what she'd said. But it's interesting. She's kind of talking about it'll take time. We're going to get there. And then you know, the media are blowing that up to we're going to win the league in five years. Um, we've also had Gadusi, um, who said in an interview with The Athletic, he said there's no reason why Newcastle in the next five years should not be a Man City or a Man United or a Liverpool. Do you think, Craig, that they're managing here to manage expectations? Or do you think that it was all part of the excitement of that day when the takeover happened and they were just... They were just excited, like they were trying not to. <laughs> they were trying not to say things that they couldn't deliver in the future, but they weren't quite managing it. Yeah, I mean, it would have been so easy to come out and turn around and say, "Yeah, we're going to win the Champions League in three years." Uh, they would have come out that, and most of the fans who were already on a high would have been absolutely buzzing to the rooftops on that one. But it wouldn't have been genuine. Um, building from where we were to even just to challenge is one hell of a feat in its uh, own right. And to do that over a five-year period, um, maybe even six or seven years, is a, a bold but accurate statement. I think we can certainly do it. Yeah. We seem to have lost Bobby briefly, but that's all right. So for me, those those words, um, they, they meant everything, really. I mean, you have to take things with a little bit, statements like that, with a little bit of a pinch of salt at that point. I think the the thing she said to the um, website is probably a bit more planned than what she said in that sit down with the journalists. Um, and I think Murdad a couple of times has said said things um, about things. You know, the, the five year thing is very very ambitious. Um, and then he's also said that in the same interview with George Colkin, he said that leaving St James's Park would be like tearing your soul out. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is a very, um, it's a very, very um, emotive thing to say and a very kind of uh, statement that could potentially come back to bite him in the future. 
Um, but when you when you're hearing your owners talk like this, um, but also preaching for the need for patience, I think that's really important. Um, and I think that we're going to talk about the actions they've taken and what they've done. Uh, but I think they they've made a good step towards some of these things they were talking about at that point. Bobby's back in here. We were just talking about. Do you think that the, with those words that Amanda said at the beginning, do you think that there's a, a danger of, of her and of the club over-promising over and their excitement at that time? Or do you think anything they say then is going to be kind of treated a little bit differently because of the excitement? Um, uh, she was just so excited. And I think it was really, it was real and genuine, as Craig said, that I think us as fans will forgive her. I don't know about the media. I can't speak on their behalf because no doubt if we don't achieve what she said in five years, they'll come back to that quote. But I think as fans, we can all just be appreciative. We got someone who was genuine and excited to be an owner of Newcastle United and, and wanted to aim high. And that's all we asked for. And that's all, you know, she gave us. So I love Amanda. I love Dad. I think as a face of the... The ownership, they've been, you know, fantastic. And that first day, seeing them walk out of the hotel and just beaming with pride, really, um, was just as good as the Dowdy announcement, to be honest. Mm. And for me, like, the things about winning the Premier League and being in Europe and things, that's all fine. But it's the things you said about creating a united philosophy and establishing mm. a clear purpose and help provide leadership. Um, that they're the things that are almost more exciting because they're the things that you have to build up before you can get that success. That's part of what being a successful club actually is. Um, and we'll see with some of the appointments they've made that they've kind of made good on what they've said there. Uh, and Absolutely. their actions are very much followed on from what she said at that time. Um, we'll come back to a couple of other things that they've said at various times. Um, and it is all... It is all Stavely and Gaduci because, like we said, like there's been a few statements from uh, Al Ramayan, who's the guy from the Public Investment Fund who's on the board. His Excellency has said a couple of things, but it's all been kind of like standard, um, standard sort of quotes from him. Um, the 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 way he has impacted has actually been when he's met when he's come to a match or when he's met up with the the club people when they went to Saudi basically things have happened straight away after that in terms of transfers so <laughs> that it's not too difficult to see like where the majority of the power is but you would expect that anyway when it's an AE when they've got 80% split you know they're going to be the ones who are calling the shots yeah. so let's have a look at what they actually have done then the, the owners so like I said before there was an issue the, as soon as they came in and it was a big issue of Steve Bruce because it wasn't long after like I said the dust had settled and everyone had calmed down a bit that questions had to start to be asked about Steve Bruce they already were being asked I think everybody assumed that he was just going to get sacked straight away um, but there was a game in two days um, from what from what we understand the there was there was an appetite to sack him straight away because they, they didn't want they didn't want a downer on the day of the Spurs game a couple of days later. But by all accounts, the Saudis said, "Well, hang on a minute. What's the plan? Like, who's going to take over?" 
is it not better to have a, a manager in charge of the game than his assistants or you know would you be sacking them as well um and Stavely had spoken to him as well and there was a quote from her where she was talking about that she'd met with Steve Bruce um but it took it took two weeks it actually took 13 days for them to sack Bruce because I think there was an international break after the Spurs game so they had a bit of time there to make a decision about what to do um but yeah it took two weeks and by the end of that two weeks people were getting agitated supporters were getting agitated and I think understandably so because Bruce was such a unpopular figure um he hadn't he it was the style of football they played but he hadn't sort of endeared himself to supporters as well maybe he never would have been able to but do you think uh Bobby will come to you first do you think it was a mistake to leave it that long um, to sack Bruce, or do you think that? And what do you think the process behind that was at the time? Uh, I think we've seen that that these guys aren't going to be rushed or, um, you know, have the pressure applied to them to make a decision quickly or to to do anything quickly. Was it a mistake? I, in my opinion, I would have done it differently. I think he was such a divisive figure for us fans. He would have been out the door as soon as possible. Maybe even not the Tottenham game because it was two days later. So how do you really configure that to to be suitable for the players and and the match day? But soon after that game, I think it would, I would have given his given him his marching orders. But I think what we're seeing with the club is they're going to be considerate of every decision and and make sure they're making the right decision always and have a process and a policy attached to everything so it's going to be frustrating because it, that that's that, that's a frustrating process but in the long run it'll be beneficial i think um to do it that way and this steve bruce decision led on to a proper process that took a long time to and a few speed bumps in the way of rejections and stuff like that to get eddie howe which has been you know unbelievable for us we'll talk about that in a minute as well but the the other thing that i think is really important is that this takeover although it had been in the in the pipeline for a long time it it caught them on the fly like it caught them by surprise i think when it did happen and it all (laughs) we're talking before like it it happened because being sports uh that that issue that there was with piracy with saudi resolved and then magically magically the next day they waved it through. it's it's just beyond belief that they actually think that anyone's stupid enough to believe that that that's the mm-hmm. reason why yep. um that was about separation but but yeah like the, it took it caught them by surprise as well so previously when they they thought they were close they had rafa benitez was part of the plan um, but this this happened just a few weeks into the new season, uh, when you know t- teams have played seven games. There was a game coming up. It caught them by surprise. They, they they had they didn't have a lot of time to decide what to do with Steve Bruce. Craig, how do you think that that kind of Bruce situation played out in the end? And would you have done it differently as well? 
I think it was right to let him take control of the, the Tottenham game, not because it was his thousandth game, which a lot of uh, the media were saying, yeah, give him the game because it's a good landmark for him. His chances are he's never going to get another job after that. Bollocks to that. Um, I think it was just good to have somebody there in the dugout barking orders, whether or good orders or not. And I don't think him being there or not would have made much difference to the result, to be honest. Um, I still think he lost 3-2 that game, 4-2, whatever it was. Um, but yeah, it, the the time after the Tottenham game to be in sacked, maybe they could have acted quicker uh, in that time frame there. They obviously had a few names uh, that they were willing to work through. Apparently they had uh, multiple interviews with a few in... I forgot his name now. They're talking about the Villarreal coach, the yeah. ex-Arsenal manager. Emery, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he was already good to go. Then the media broke it. Then he decided to stay. And then obviously we're seeing the uh, now infamous images of Eddie Howe walking down the, the steps at Brighton, shaking Dan Ashworth's hands, uh, which is a bit of a strange run for things that followed. And as I said before, the rest is in history. It should have happened a bit sooner, but... I don't think they had much of an option, to be honest. I'm pleased you brought Emery up there. Yeah, Unai Emery, because it became apparent that Bruce would be going uh, and that they were, like Bobby said, they were going through the process of appointing a new manager. And it got down to two, which... And and then, like, this, this bit did come out in the media and it came out the day of a Champions League game as well for Villarreal. Yeah. So... Who who leaked this and where this actually came from, I don't know. But a lot of the journalists started saying that Newcastle were about to point Unai Emery. And then he got questioned about that on the on the day of the Champions League game, which was far from ideal. And then Guillaume Balague, the well-connected Spanish journalist, said that after the Champions League game and overnight after that, he changed his mind and he'd done a U-turn. By this point, we'd all got very excited about the prospect of having an 11-time trophy-winning manager. Um, and I don't know if we knew at this point that Howe was the second person who'd been interviewed to the end. Well, um, apparently, uh, Al Rumian, uh, he wanted Howe first. He was his first choice. I don't know why they decided to go with uh, Unai Emery, but yeah, apparently Howe was uh, his excellent first choice. But again, it yeah, was a majority vote. It was a majority vote with the board, right. and I, th I think it was close. I think it was what four three or whatever it was. But yeah, it's been said whether it's true or not that um, his excellency was all in the the how camp. Yeah, that that whole because that whole debacle. It was it was embarrassing. Mm. I think what happened with the Emery. Do you think? That that's kind of a lesson to be learned, Bob. We don't know who leaked it. it. Could have been leaked from Spain, you know. But do you think that that's a lesson to be learned from for the owners of, you know, possible pitfalls when you're dealing with high-profile appointments and you know crazy football clubs? Do you think that that's a that's a big lesson for them to learn at that point? I think it was, and I think it is, and I think they've they have learned from that lesson. At the time, it was embarrassing. At the time, it was. Um, naive, um, an amateur, um, but it was probably a good thing because they've learnt their lesson and um, they've, they've become a lot better at um, holding information within. And, you know, at the time, you know, we all got excited about Emery coming on board and and all that. And then within a click of the fingers, it was all dashed and you were sort of left red-faced and 
of everything you've sort of said, said and wanted. But um, yeah, I think it was a good thing to happen in the end to just to to give them a, a lesson, you know, in what not to do. And I think that the leak came from their side. Um, but um, yeah, I think you know it was uh, very early in their ownership, and it was a good thing to happen. Yeah. And it was good as well because we ended up with Eddie Howe, who we've talked. Eddie Howe? Eddie Howe. <laughs> one of my, my daughter's favourite things to say. But yeah, we, we ended up with, with him. Um, and I, we're pretty much all on record on the podcast about saying how impressed we are with him, especially after that first press conference he did, but then the work he did last year as well. I was concerned about his ability to manage egos uh, and to to handle the kind of the challenge of managing at such a big club where there's so much pressure and so much expectation uh, and so much scrutiny. But his first press conference, we we did research like we do. <laughs> we went onto Google and we listened to some Bournemouth fans and watched every video we could about Eddie Howe. And then I think I was sold after that first press conference, even though results didn't pick up for a while. So I think it's probably fair to say, Bobby, that they've they've made the they've ultimately come to the right decision on the on that first huge appointment, recruitment appointment that they had to make when they appointed Eddie Howe. Yeah, and, and credit to them to get Eddie Howe into that process and so far down the line. I think we can all say that, you know, uh, you know. Eddie was a second choice and yada, yada, yada. But I don't think many had Eddie Howe in that top bracket anyway of the names listed for us. There was a lot, a list of names as long as you could you could count, but um, not many were mentioning Eddie Howe. He was sort of lost to the wilderness. So for him to be in the conversation at the end, despite what happened with Emery, uh, full credit for them for doing their research and and going in and finding, finding him and, yeah, like, a bit like you, Jackie, I was sold on him probably before his press conference. I just thought, you know, this guy's he's, he's an intelligent, young, progressive manager. It's something that we need. And, um, yeah, it's proven to be that way despite some idiots on Twitter recently. Um, he's, uh, he's proven to be an absolute breath of fresh air um, for our club and uh, a guy you can see having a very long future at the club. Well, in the same interview that Caduce was talking about Newcastle being Manchester City in five years with the Athletic with George Cocken, he was also saying that he would love Eddie Howe to be the next Alex Ferguson. So I don't know who gets more excited, um, Stavely or Caduce, because <laughs> he seems to say some. He seems to get very excited and say, and he, he's good value on Twitter as well. He did the he, uh, he, he did that tweet once where he'd photoshopped his own. Based on that, Alan Shearer scoring a penalty at the stadium, <laughs> like in the transfer window time as well. But yeah. that, but Craig, that's a pretty big thing for him to say, isn't it? That he would love for him to be. He's only saying he's not good. He's not saying he's going to be. He's saying he would love him to be the next Alex Ferguson. But I mean, Alex Ferguson won what? I don't even know how many trophies. All Eddie has to do is win one trophy, and he'll be a legend forever for us. Is that right, Craig? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, if. Eddie can do what Keegan couldn't do in two stints and what Sir Bobby couldn't do in his stint here. He will go down as a living legend and he will have his own statue at St. James's Park 
um, sooner rather than later. I genuinely think we will win a trophy under Eddie. Um, how quickly we will, not a clue. Um, hopefully sooner rather than later. But I can't even can't comprehend what it would be like just to see Kieran Trippier or Jamal Asals, whoever, just lift up a trophy. I, I, I can't even picture it in my head because it's just something we haven't had ingrained in our minds for however many years. Uh, I remember Colo lifting that TV aerial a few years ago, whatever it was, <laughs> in the, the Intertoto or whatever it was, some friendly competition we won. And you just look so dejected the fact that it was the ugliest trophy in the world. Um, but yeah, to, to still going to be potentially the next Sir Alex Ferguson, even if he's half as good as him, he's going to win everything in the game. Uh, yeah. Simple as that. You, you, managers like Sir Alex Ferguson, like Pep Guardiola, uh, they don't come around very often. And Eddie, so far, is showing small glimpses of that brilliance. Uh, whether he'll get that level, I don't think he will do, because like so, those managers are once in a lifetime. But if he gets half of uh, that right, then we've got a winning formula. And the thing is, as well, these these new owners, you know, they'll have been getting calls from agents and everyone. Like Newcastle was the biggest story in world football for a period of time. So for them to kind of screen all that noise out and ignore, like we're talking about again, the process to go through, to, to do that and then to, uh, it was a bit difficult because we were in the, you know, the, the league position we were in, it looked like we could get relegated and some managers might not have fancied that. But for them to screen all that out and then appoint Eddie Howe from their process and you can see from the way he works, his his diligence and his own his own focus on the process and trusting what he does. Why is it, why he's been such a good fit for what they wanted and why he's been such a good fit for Newcastle at that time. So I think we're definitely going to chalk that one down as a, as a win, even at this early stage. Um, They, they, they did well to get, to get him. Um, And it's been so far a big success. The other two really important appointments were the first one was, Dan Ashworth, who they've brought in as technical director. And this was interesting as well, because it wasn't long after the takeover happened that they had the January transfer window. And there was a lot of work that needed to be done urgently to improve the squad very, very quickly. So we started picking points up and avoided relegation. They, again, had gone through the... They knew that we needed kind of a technical or sporting director They'd gone through the process. Michael Emanalo at one point was floated, who used to be at Chelsea. But you can see what they've done. They've identified the man. They might have done some interviews, and then they waited. And with with Dan Ashworth, they waited a long time as well because he wasn't available to join until this summer. It was June he came in. So they had to go through the process with Brighton, uh, the we're going to talk about what they what they've done with not bowing to other clubs' demands as well, financial demands. But they, they seem to have done this with, with Ashworth, even though they knew it was going to be important to get him in as quickly as they could. He was put on gardening leave by Brighton a couple of months before he did join us. But again, going back to what Amanda Stavely said the very first day that the takeover happened about the strategy and about the vision, you can't think of anyone better. Craig, to bring this together than the man who they took from Brighton, Dan Ashworth, can you? Yeah, he's going to be the glue that holds everything together for the next five to ten years. 
Um, you think of a spider web effect. He is smack bang in the middle of that web. Uh, I think that's kind of how he almost described his role in the first interview with the club. Uh, he is the big cog in the machine, controlling everything else from the women's team to the academy to transfers to loan markets, everything I guess. He's literally got a, an eye in every fire. And that man's role must be stupidly busy on a day-to-day -day basis. I can't imagine how he manages to cram everything in. But if can replicate what he'd done at Brighton. I know he, uh, there was a few other people that had helped help him do his role, but wouldn't do it kind of Brighton, but with a financial muscle of PIF behind him. And the future is not only bright for Newcastle in terms of players that we can bring in, but it's also ridiculously bright for the first time in ages for the academy as well, which is a yeah. huge, huge uh, stepping stone for us in terms of where the club can be in another five to ten years. And it's interesting, we've seen Elliot Anderson sign a new contract recently as well. And as well as the quotes from Anderson and from Eddie Howe, you've got a quote from Dan Ashworth in there as well about the importance yeah. of developing the players we've already got. But Amanda Stavely had said, we intend to create a united philosophy across the club. That basically, Bobby, is what Dan Ashworth does, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, he's our most important signing. And I'll, I'll live on that remark as long as I live. I think... Um, He's a very smart man. His stuff, the work he did with Football Association of England um, has changed England. Like England was a, a laughing stock, really, um, especially to us Aussies here um, <laughs> in, in, in football. And you know, now they're not they're no longer a laughing stock, and they keep producing young talent. And it's because he built the foundations of that, and he's going to do that. He did that at Brighton, and you can see how well run they are. And he's going to do that with us. And I think that's the most exciting thing for us. It's not just about buying your Mbappes and whatever that was floated early. It was all about every other facet of the club that's been neglected for so long. He's got to get the love and care and, and smartness of a guy like Dan Ashworth, who I think is the smartest man in football. And we've got him at our club. So, you know, I, I can't stress how important the guy is and, I think that's why we've all got well, I certainly do have faith in where this club's going because of uh, that man. You can just see it all falling falling into place, though. Like with these appointments, you can see how these key strategic appointments into the key positions, how that's going to help them realise the vision and how everyone is going to be pulling in the same direction and it's everything's aligned. And you can understand as well how with the recruitment of off-pitch staff, like if this is what the what the chief executives are and the top executives, then that's going to trickle down through the rest of the employment as well. And let's not forget the club was complete shell. Lee Charney was doing everything when they came in. Um, so they've they've got to recruit, um, which is you know a good thing to an extent. And it's going to give them a bit of a blank slate to a degree. And the next person that they did, appointed was a chief executive, which was Darren Eels. So again, this had been through a very considered process. Um, and they they fell upon this guy who it wasn't particularly well known to football supporters in England, although he had worked at West Brom before and worked at Spurs. But his 
really impressive work had happened in the USA with Atlanta United, which was a club that didn't even exist when he became employee number one. Uh, and within within two years of existing, I think, as a football club, in 2018, they won the MLS Cup. Um, I spoke to uh, a supporter from Atlanta United to just try and get the lowdown on Darren Neils at that time. Um, and he's a he's a people person. He's all about the supporters. He's been on a couple of podcasts where he's talk, he talks about the importance of... Um, understanding what the fans want and how that, how that can then make good business. You can make, then make good business decisions based off that. But again, as with Eddie Howe and as with Dan Ashworth, this is kind of the final piece of that sort of executive structure puzzle um, for Newcastle to start getting the wheels in motion to increase their commercial activity and to start get bringing money in which will help us with financial fair play again Gaducci said on Twitter this time in July 2022 he said we're building a skyscraper so we need to make sure our foundations are solid welcome on board Darren that's what he said when Darren Eels was appointed Bobby another another smart appointment in Darren Eels it seems that way it does um, I think his business acumen He's, he's done a little bit differently to the other uh, CEOs that would have put their name up as well. They would have, um, they did say early they're after something, someone different who can, who can challenge the status quo in their thinking. And reading on Darren Eels, he's he's exactly that type. He's he's done things a little bit differently, built a club from from scratch or from before scratch, um, and basically that's what Newcastle is. It's it's about rebuilding the club again from. A blank sheet of paper, really. Um, so I think they've got the right guy. Time will tell, um, but everything looks pretty good. But I think also his connections in America, you know, commercially, that's the, I think deep down, I think that's their, their golden paradise is America and, and hitting that market and trying to get in there. And um, Darren was well loved amongst the Atlanta United fans and, and that region. So, um, you know, I think that's uh, something that, was considered as well. And so in time, you know, him bringing in the commercial revenue from America would be something that's going to help us in the long run. Mm. He turned, he turned Atlanta United into, I think they had the, they were in the top 10 for average um, attendance in the world, not mm. in the, not in the USA, in the world uh, of that, because they're playing a 74,000 seat stadium. Which they, stadium. Yeah, which they which is also a NFL stadium which they fill some of the time. Um, but then the rest of the time they play it, they don't have the top tier open uh and they put flags down and things so it looks full still, but they still get fifty five thousand to to games, which is amazing. But Craig, in terms of these like we're gonna talk about the transfer window in a minute, but in terms of these like off field appointments. Like when you're a kid, when you follow football clubs, this is not what gets your juices flowing, is it? Like executives and who's going to be. But with this, do you think, do you just think it's because we're older now or do you think it's because there's so much interest in Newcastle on Twitter and everyone knows everything and want, there's just such an insatiable appetite for news? But do you think that that's why we're getting excited now about executive appointments and, you know, who's who's wearing the suits? Well, 
I think when you're a kid, the most important thing is what happens in those 90 minutes at the weekend. You you didn't really pay attention to what was happening behind the scenes or anything. It was all about did you win, lose, or draw at the weekend. That was the, the important thing. But social media has had such a massive impact on stuff like this. Uh, we mentioned before how the the story for Unai Emery got leaked and everything just went backwards from then on. But this announcement of Darren Eels literally came out of nowhere. Um, again, maybe because he wasn't significantly well-known or anything, but it was literally a case of the second the ink was dry on that contract, the announcement was made and everybody's like, well, have they managed to do this behind closed doors and not many people have taken notice? And that, in that very short learning curve shows how much knowledge these uh, owners have now in doing things behind closed doors, away from the fans, away from the press, away from the media, is how it should be done. Because um, when things do get leaked to the media, whether it's right or wrong, it gets sensationalised like there's no tomorrow. It just gets massively blown out of proportion. Expectations get blown out of proportion. And most of the time, or at least previous uh, regimes, there's a lot of heartbreak and disaster and Twitter can be a very toxic place because of that but now everything is happening in a due manner it's happening with the right people at the right time and it's a really really good thing to see finally and we're going to come on to talk about the transfers um the transfer windows but the you were talking about keeping things under wraps there and you know not releasing things to the media and that's definitely just been shown with the way that the ITKs were pretty roundly embarrassed in the transfer window we've just had. Uh, so yep. they've definitely learned from the, the Emery situation. Um, and maybe they've learned which agents to trust, who to talk to and who not to talk to, and how to go about dealing with them as well. Um, but the the exciting things when the takeover happened, you started thinking about, it was still a few months away, but you started thinking about January and who we might be able to sign. And again, like I've I've written a, a couple of articles about how it can be very difficult for new football club owners to come into this industry uh, where there's so much sort of celebrity and money swashing around everywhere. But how do you kind of go about knowing who to, who to talk to, who to listen to, and identifying what you actually need instead of just getting players put on you? And January transfer window was probably like a window like no other because we were in a really bad situation in the league where we were 19th or a couple of points, uh, still, you know, more than a couple of points away from safety at that stage. Um, we'll talk about the January transfer window first, but I'm just going to throw it to you, Bobby. How do you think that the owners, in terms of the players that they brought in and the way they conducted themselves in January, how do you think that they managed their first transfer window as owners of Newcastle United? Yeah, I think it was very difficult for them and they learned a lot of things in that January window. I think it was a tale of two halves. Um, I think halfway through, they were struggling. Um, they had Kieran Trippier, which is an unbelievable get. I think he was lined up from a while away, but um, and then they went really... And then Chris Wood was a paddock purchase, which we needed to do. Um, and then they sort of struggled for a while, if you remember. And I think it was when they went to Saudi, um, Eddie Howe took over and and helped and lended a hand and was sort of doing everything, the poor bloke. But we sort of got back on track and made 
um, you know, made some some better signings and um, and got through to the end of January with with the, the players we got. And um, in the end, that looked, you know, that was enough for us to survive and, and play some good football. So, um, yeah, I think they would have learnt a lot. And I think they were, I think it was after that they they went hard on Ashworth. <laughs> I think they knew they needed someone in that leadership position to, to, to carry the, um, the dealings and, and the time and everything like that. And, um, but I think, yeah, so I think they struggled it initially, but then they got through it in the end in January and proof was in the pudding. I think they, they did all right in the end. I, th- I remember getting to the end of January and I wasn't satisfied, but I didn't take into effect how hard it's been for these people that are inexperienced and dealing with agents and all this sort of thing. It must be a nightmare, to be honest. And how good Bruno is as well. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you know, to get Bruno sort of, it's been unreal, you know, him and Trippier for us, you know, it's been the standout. So, you know, what can you say? They, they brought Bruno in, so all is good. I think the fact that they trust Eddie Howe's judgment as well and the fact that he was thrust into this kind of de facto director of football position, which he has said was really stressful because he was wanted to focus on the coaching because he had to because we were in such a bad league position. But the fact that that happened, I think, meant that we signed Trippier, I think was a house signing, definitely. Mm. Um, and then, you know, Burn and Target and Wood probably knew, would have known them all as well and what they would bring. And such, like, the focus on the character was really important. Um, we made a, They made a good attempt at showing that they were not going to be pushed around as well in that transfer window because Man United tried to completely take the piss with Jesse Lingard uh, and get us the charge. They asked for a ridiculous loan fee and then a bonus if we stayed up as well. Which I'm really pleased that the owners just said, No, we're not going to do that. There was also Botman as well and Diego Carlos, the def- defenders in January, who they said they went, they were interested, they put what they deemed to be fair bids in, and then that those deals didn't happen because the clubs wouldn't play ball. So Again, it would be very easy for new owners with so much money and so much financial backing to just say, right, what do you want? And just give it. But they knew that that was going to could set a bad precedent for future transfer windows. And they were very careful about that, which has been a little bit frustrating at times, possibly. Um, but I don't think you'd get much disagreement that that's a sensible approach when you're trying to sustainably build for the long term. Um Amanda Stavely, actually, and this this just goes back to, to showing kind of a thread that runs through everything. She said on the day of the takeover in the statement to the website, we're really excited about strengthening the squad, but we have to work within financial fair play and make sure this is done over a long term. So even at the same time as she's getting excited about transfer, about um winning the league in five years and this kind of stuff, even when that's happening, she's still saying that, you know, she's referencing financial fair play straight away, like to try and kind of keep expectations in check a little bit. Um, Of course, by the end of the summer transfer window, Newcastle had a total commitment of about £210 million outlay. So not all in one go, but that's what they'd committed on transfer fees on the eight new signings. So Craig... I mean, taking into account January as well, 
that's that's a massive investment, isn't it? Of two hundred and ten million. How do you think the kind of when as they went into the summer transfer window compared to January? Uh, and do you think like do you think that that investment is what you expected they would have made, or less or more by that point? I think it's pretty much bang on where we expect it to be. Maybe a little bit more if the right player came around. Um, one thing to take into consideration as well, they spent $210 million, but they've had virtually nothing back in terms of transfers out. Everything's been a loan or we've had a tariff contract that we did with Dwight Gale, I think it was. We just paid him out and he went to uh, Stoke on a free. And we had a very aging squad at the time, so we knew we weren't going to get uh, any decent money for any of them. And anybody that did have decent value, we had to keep them because we had a very thin squad as well. Um, so the, they've done the best. They've done what they needed to do. I'm super glad that they didn't decide, you know what, let's have our, our pants pulled down and we'll just give clubs what they want. Because, again, that would have set the, the tone for future windows. And anyhow, came out at the end of uh, this current summer window, turned around and says, yep, no club wants to do us a favour. It's basically us against the world. And I'm all for that, to be honest. Um, it's felt like that for a while, uh, let alone just in these transfer windows. So if that's the way it has to be, we got to fight for ourselves. Luckily, we've got the financial uh, might of um, PIF behind us uh, because they, they will help. And hopefully, with uh, future revenues coming in, those purse strings will loosen a little and we can be a bit more flexible in what we can spend. But if you would have told me this time last year, on the a few days or whatever it is before the takeover, that we would spend two hundred and ten million pounds on investments uh, just in transfers alone without selling anybody, I would ask you to check yourself into hospital and get yourself looked at, <laughs> um, because it just was never ever going to happen. I think we we spent ninety seven million in January, which was the highest spending team in Europe, I believe, uh, and we spent a significant amount in January. But we kept some of the targets going through. We didn't just scrap everything, start from scratch. Botman was obviously a long-term target. Ekiteki was a long-term target. Unfortunately, went to PSG. Um, and there were probably other long-term targets in there, which just never came to where uh, the, the light in terms of the media getting out there. And no mm -hmm. doubt there will be future other long-term targets. But the money spent is just phenomenal. It just doesn't compete with Newcastle United, especially this time last year. And what they did was they built from the back as well, didn't they? So they did. they, they, they recognised that, like even now, like the squad is a bit light in the attacking positions, but the the most expensive players to sign often. But they completely they, they signed a new goalkeeper in back four for the same price as Man United paid for Harry Maguire, which is something <laughs> that I, I like talking about a lot because it's a good stat. But. They, they identified, and, and I think this again is where the value of having that alignment all through the club of and of the manager getting on board with it and saying, I think this is what we want and this is what we need. So let's go and do that. And that's where we're going to focus the money. And that's what they did. And you look at the Pope, of the, you look at the, the Pope, you look at the spine <laughs> of the team now, and you've got Nick Pope, and you've got Botman, and you've got um, Bruno and Isak huge sign-ins right through the middle of the team there who are some of them might you know they might take a little bit of time to bet in 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 the um case of Isak even though he's already scored two goals but yeah like it's gonna it's the it's the squad has just been completely 
overhauled to a to a degree that if you take the two transfer windows together, is like is absolutely astonishing. And to be sitting here, you know, with with the squad we've got now, even though we've struggled a little bit to to pick up wins this season, it's often through no no fault of our own. But the squad is just incredible compared to where it was. So if you could summarize Bobby kind of the 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 owner's approach to the transfer market. Do you think that this is going to continue in the future future years, what they've done now? Or do you think they're going to change change tack? Do you think they need to change tack at some point? They'll change tack once we make Europe. Or we, we're challenging for Europe. And once the commercial revenue comes through and once we can sell players with a little bit of coin, I think they're very measured because they understand FFP to the nth degree and they know if they blow all the money now, I think they can spend six hundred million, seven hundred million right now. But what's it going to do next year or the year after when we get to Europe and we need to buy a player and we can't because we can't afford to do it? Or what happens if we spend at this stage with us not in Europe, we're going to overspend for a player that's not really worthy of a European spot and become like Everton? Um, so I think they're very measured. They're finding right players, character some young talent that's going to evolve with the club. And then I think their tact will slightly change as, you know, next year we, we make the seventh and we get in the Europe, Europa Conference League. Okay, opens it up for a bit better players and we've got a bit more money to spend. So we'll get that the next talented player and stuff like that. So I think they know what they're doing. It's, it is frustrating for all the uh, football manager fans out there that, you know, just think we've got this endless pick of money. We do, but it's got to be done right. And I think they've got a plan in place. And I think it'll be considered and measured until, you know, these triggers happen. And once mm. the triggers happen, might change a bit of tact and go from there. But it's just going to, I think I've said from the start, we've just got to enjoy the journey, um, not just think of the destination. Yeah. It's a, it's a football club with a plan, isn't it? Which is just mm. brilliant. Go on, Craig. You can see it. You can see it. Speaking of a plan, our next signing has got to be Barcelona's accountant. Has to be, because <laughs> how they have managed to uh, get a profit now of 250 million euros when they were a billion euros in debt, it's absolutely bonkers. So yeah, I think our next sentence should be yeah, their accountant, because then we'll just be able to spend for the sake of it and they'll make up some random number. Yeah, we made a profit. We just spent 300 million on Mbappe. But yeah, we're making a profit. Who gives a shit? <laughs> that's just a disaster waiting to happen, isn't it? I think it really that's... is. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm... It's been hard to keep up with what's actually happened there, um, but I, I'm I'm pleased that our club is is being sensible and is not doing things like that. Like we we want to still be here in five ten years, and I'm not sure Barcelona are going to be if they carry on the way they've been going. No, but but all of this stuff, right, all of these appointments, and all of the the transfer window and everything else they've been dealing with, they've also done a lot of off-the-pitch things as well. So Keegan did an, an article for our website just listing some of these things they've done. And I'm just going to reel them off and then I'm going to let you talk about what you, you know, what has really struck a chord with, with you two about this. So the Sports Direct signs being removed was probably, I mean, some of these things are kind of like easy, quick wins, you know. Uh, there was some kind of clause apparently about the Sports Direct signs where, it couldn't be removed too early. And then Mike Ashley was kicking off about it and threatening legal action about when they did take them down. But 
that was like a hugely symbolic uh, symbolic moment when that happened. They had they renamed Shearer's Bar again, quick win, uh, and they moved a statue onto club land instead of city council land. They have incorporated the women's team from the who used to Massive. play under the foundation into the club proper, which I didn't even know that it wasn't part of the club proper. I knew that they weren't yeah. funded and they weren't very good. Um, there's the training ground and the St. James's Park renovations. Basically gave St. James's Park its first lick of paint in about 10 years. Um, they've changed the training ground up while they look for options for creating a new training ground. They've and in terms of with the fans, they've they've reopened kind of dialogue and transparency with supporter groups and war flags, which has been such a iconic part of this whole takeover process since the takeover. They've welcomed them back into the fold for every game and have given them their full support. That these are they're just a couple of things that they've done in in the space of a year since the takeover happened. Um, as I said, some of them are kind of quick, quick wins. You know, they're going to get positive reaction. Um, some of them probably maybe a bit more substantial. But I'll come to you first on this, Craig. Which of those are, and is there anything else that they've done that you wanted to talk about off the pitch that's really sort of made you feel good or you think's been important? There is one other thing which uh, it never got the attention it deserved, to be honest. And that was when Amanda and Maydad met all, met all the, the staff at St. James's, those working behind the scenes, uh, the receptionist, the accounts, whoever, are uh, just there. And they put everybody there on, I think it's called uh, the living wage now, where basically your wage rises with inflation and everything. Else. So you're not just stuck on the, the minimum wage where you've got one set for however until you get a pay rise. So if inflation rises, your pay uh, rises uh, with the equivalent amount as well. And I think that uh, at a time when a lot of people are doing really hard by, uh, where they're relying on food banks and everything like that, I think that is something that just didn't get the, the media right up or the attention it deserved because there was absolutely no way Ashley would dig his hands in his pockets and give any of those staff any extra pennies than what they deserve. And it's something they didn't need to do. And it's those people behind the scenes that often get overlooked. And then from the tea ladies to those who work on match days, they're now getting a better rate of pay, which is just going to improve their overall quality of life, help them pay the bills. And that's the least any club should do for its staff. Brilliant. Right, you know, I couldn't have said any of that better. That was something that I hadn't... Like you said, it didn't create a lot of um, mm -hmm. sort of... And it, wasn't, it isn't something that is uh, symbolic, maybe, is ripping down Sports Direct signs or bringing the statue statue onto the club land. But Bobby, what any of those that you wanted to kind of flag as well or talk about? No, I think it summed it up. I think it all was, you know, it goes back to what we said about when the ownership changed. It was just a lot of those were getting rid of the stadium of Mike Ashley. And, you know, I think that's the thing we look forward to when the new owners came in and those easy wins of recreating the relationship between Alan Shearer and the club. I mean, that mm. in itself is huge for us because he's a he's the reason we I support Newcastle United. He's a legend. Um, and, uh, yeah, to, to have him disenfranchised with the club because of Mike Ashley was always hurtful, but straight away they brought it back and, and did the right thing. And I think that's basically it, isn't it? They're doing the right thing 
by us, by the fans and by the legends and the past players. And as Craig said, the staff who were, who were important as well. So they just keep doing these things and, and doing it the right way. And, you know, that's why we're happy with the ownership, not all the other jargon you want to talk about over our heads, but they're generally caring and doing the right thing by everyone involved. And the reason why I wanted to bring up some of those quotes and things they've said is because we've, we've, we've listened to what they've said, and but then they've actually backed it up as well up to now. Mm. They've, they've backed up what they've said and their rhetoric with action as well. Uh, and I think, I think you've always got to be wary of football club owners. Obscenely, incredibly rich people, vastly, vastly successful in what they do. We've got an interesting situation where we've got three different set, set of owners as well. Um, they, they seem to be as excited as the fans are. They are saying and doing the right things. Their actions are backing up the words. And as long as that keeps happening, I think we've got every reason to keep on backing them and keep on being excited. I won't be surprised if at some point they have to make unpopular decisions or they do things that we don't like because that's what happens in football. Um, but I think that the track they're on now, the way they've started, I think is... It couldn't have been much of a better start, I think, from from what we've just talked about, and and then backing up their their words with meaningful activity and meaningful actions that have, you know, that have made the club stronger and have set the foundations, like what Murdad was saying, set the foundations because we're building a skyscraper, and that's what we're going to be doing with these people who are in place. Let's just have a think now about the kind of immediate, medium and long-term future. Craig, I'll come to you first on this one. How do you see the next sort of, let's just say, let's say, how do you see the next 12 months going then? We've had 12 months. How do you see the next 12 months going for the owners? Uh, Stability is a key thing. Um, I think that above all is probably the the most important thing. Uh, We maintain our position in the Premier League comfortably. And we build on that, like what we've already started to do. Uh, top 10 finish, good cup run, uh, puts us in real good stead moving forward. Nobody expects a trophy this season or next season, maybe even the season after. But as long as we keep challenging, we keep trying, the club's moving forward. That's all we want to see. And if we can say that from the owners, they're still correspond with us in the media, whether it be through social media, through uh, Meerdad or uh, Jamie Rubin, or if it's coming direct from the club. It's something we never had previously. Very, very rarely did we get a, a statement from Ashley or Charnley or anything like that. And now we're almost getting direct communication, maybe once a month, even more than that, to be honest. And if that keeps on that right path, and they live up to their promises, and which I think they will do, because they haven't over-promised, and they've said they don't want to either, as long as they keep up to that. And yes, they will make mistakes, which we've talked about before uh, in previous podcasts, and they're only human, that will happen. But it's then learning from those mistakes and building from those mistakes. And so far, everything is falling in place. The foundations of well in place now and that skyscraper is now probably one or two floors high and I just can't wait for us to get to the top. Mm. I think for me, like we know that any decision they make, whether that's making an appointment uh, off the pitch or whether that's not 
spending extra money and buying a player. Um, it's the decisions they make are in the interests of Newcastle United and are in the interests of long-term sustainable growth. And I think for me, that's just as important uh, to know that we've got custodians of the club who are going to do do that as as any. It's just as important and exciting as any signing we might make. Like Bobby, I agree with you that Dan Ashworth probably is the most important signing we'll make uh, this this year or any subsequent year, probably. But how do you, Bobby? How do you see the next sort of the next twelve months going for the for the owners? Yeah, a bit like what Craig said, he summed it up pretty well. I think stability is key, and just I, I've said all along, I don't expect a European place in the next next year or two. But um, steady growth um, is is what we are sort of looking for, or some of us anyway. Um, I wouldn't mind hearing a little bit more plans about the training ground and the redevelopment and the academy and the women's team and all those things that are. You know, they are doing and they're touching on. I just want to see snippets of all that sort of stuff as well, um, just so it sort of shows that ambition that they've got, you know, for the next five, ten years. But um, in terms of on the field and the, the men's team and and everything like that, yeah, just steady growth, being considerate, um, being smart and building those foundations. I The only thing I disagreed with Craig is I don't think we're too full but I think that foundation's just setting. I honestly think we're at the really, really early age, and they've just right, they've just laid the slab, and the the slab is forming. And you know, I think that the the first and second floors are just about to be built. But um, you know, it, it's going to be a, it's going to be exciting. Right. Just before we just before we wrap up, I just want to ask you both: like, how do you summarize what they what the new owners have done? and brought to Newcastle and to, to kind of the fan base and to you personally, if you want as well, how do we, how do you summarize what they've done? Craig, come to you first. They've made Newcastle United again, because we were a disjointed fan base. We were a disjointed football club. We were a club with no direction. We were heading down to the championship and it was just a case of, are we just going to fall down the Football League then, I reckon. I think a lot of people thought it was going to be that way. Uh, and they've also reunited the City too. Um, it, it's always well documented that when Newcastle plays well, the City's bouncing, uh, you know, the, the big marker, the gate, wherever, is all uh, chocker on a Saturday afternoon, Saturday night, because the tune have picked up three points. And little things like that make a huge difference, not just to the club, but to the city in general, um, whether it's uh, the economy, because more people are drinking and eating, that type of stuff. But it just makes people happy. And Newcastle is a, we're a one football team town. And we are a football mad town as well. And nothing makes us happier than seeing us pick up three points. And they've come a long way to help doing it. Mm. It's hope, isn't it? That's the that's the word. It's they, they've, They've given us hope again. They've they've allowed us to support our club fully again. For me, anyway, like uh, there's no there's no kind of shrugging my shoulders when we lose or when we concede a goal. Now there's full on upset, real emotion, which mm-hmm. when you're in Australia is in the middle of the night and doesn't help <laughs> you trying to get to sleep afterwards. But and it's that like it's that unity, it's that alignment and the strategy and all of these words that they say, but. 
it's the connection as well that it's brought for fans as well. Like we're not the only podcast to have started in the wake of the of the takeover happening. Like, you know, we're seven seven guys who used to chat a little bit on Twitter and now we've like, we've all met each other pretty much and we've done this, we've started the podcast and that's all because of the takeover. That this, that wouldn't have happened. None of this would have happened if it wasn't for the takeover. So personally, like, uh, it's it's made me lose sleep because <laughs> <I, laughs> I've got to care about my club again. Um, and I've taught my daughter how to say Eddie Howe and Nick Pope and all the other things like that as well, but... It's like it's it's the kind of personal connections that you get from it as well, uh, as well as all the football and the on pitch stuff, uh, which for me is what what the takeover means. And like no matter what happens between now and you know in the next little period of time, like we'll we'll always have this period where we've we've come together, we've met each other, we've we've started doing what you know doing this, which is a real passion and a real labor of love, I think, for all of us. So. For me, that's like the aside from all the on pitch and obviously getting to see Newcastle have good players and Brazilian internationals and everything. I think that's the one thing personally on my on a level that I, is really gonna gonna stick with me for that. Bobby, come to you. You haven't had a turn yet. Uh, you summed it up. I was going to say hope. Um, it's lit the fire again into the ambition and looking into the future. But yeah, more importantly. Two under wouldn't be around if it wasn't for the takeover, and you know I think I've you know I'll speak on my behalf. I've made lifelong friends, and um, because of the connection to a club in the northeast of England, um, <laughs> and only because of a takeover from people from all walks of life. I think that's the other thing that's great for me to see the passion of a guy like my dad Gadusi and um, you know Amanda Stavely out outsiders like I am or I feel to the club. Not born. And raised in Newcastle, but um, so passionate about the club and the city, um, and they're sort of just you know they've connected us all you know together, and I think that's the greatest thing that's happened for me anyway. And yeah, it's it's meant everything because the club was on a free fall; it was going nowhere fast, and and with a blink of a blink of an eye or a click of the fingers, I think we've got um, all our hope back. So it's fantastic. And I think on that note, after an hour and 25 minutes of talking about the new owners and talking about Newcastle United again, I think we will leave it at that. All right. I'll speak to you soon. Thanks very much, Craig. Hello, bud. Thanks very much, Bobby. Thanks, Jack. Thanks, Craig. I hope I'm going to get to sleep now. Cheers. Cheers, lads.